Hello. Oh. Hello, Matt. How you doing? Great. So, uh, here's how I need to start. <clears throat> Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and the days of old lang syne? Because I thought we were never going to do this again. Uh, we shouldn't do that again. Okay. We we did that years ago. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, let's see. We're, uh, let me switch to page one here. Oh, here's the strip. I like the strip this time. You're, you're getting better. Do you think that uh, uh, Iguana and Beer, if, uh, if they ever got the right shaped bird balloons, they'd have the wrong voices? Yeah, it's one of those, there's, there's ways of doing word balloons using the computer, but to do it is more steps than I feel is necessary for my stupid strips. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pearls before swine, or uh, age before beauty, or something like that. It, it's, Matt's kind of lazy. <laughs> Oh, that too. Let's, let's not rule that one out. Okay, I believe it is my go to memorialize Jeff. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, but my memory will probably lead to a memory from you. Well, let's, let's see if that's what happens. So, I, I actually looked up in my email, because I'm pretty sure there was an email about this, and there is. So, from, let's see, April 2nd, 2007... I emailed the Yahoo group, and the title was, I wonder what David say. <clears throat> so in my comic for this year's space, Race Car Comics number three, I have a scene where angry Jesus shows up and starts pummeling the living crap out of Octo Jesus with his baseball bat of righteousness. It probably doesn't make any more sense if you actually read it. And while this is happening, off-panel, I decided to letter real badass Wrath of God quotes from the Bible in the background, an easy way to fill up space and not have to draw backgrounds. And the first page, I took some mean stuff from Ezekiel. And then I wanted something that Jesus actually said for the next page, so I randomly flipped to a really red page in Luke. In my Bible, all that Jesus says is red. And by a strange coincidence, it was Luke chapter 17. Siler and Billy are laughing right now. So for all you Tangent fans out there, look closely on page 10, panel 5 for Luke 17.35. Or, two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken and the other left. And I swear, I picked it at random. Matt. And yes, I know it's three weeks to space, and no, I'm not done with my comic yet. I work better under deadline. To which Jeff, to which Jeff re responded, So, he asked innocently, what do you think that, emphasis, means. <laughs> and I responded, the two women grinding thing or the work better under deadline thing? Matt, I once made a sculpture of Devil's Tower out of mashed potatoes for an art class. That meant something. Right. So, and then, in a really weird comic art metaphysics thing, 
I went and grabbed my copy of issue 3 because I'm going to scan the relevant panels to put into the videos for this. And the copy I have in my personal stash of these are my copies has an extra extra signature in it because it's, you know, the way I the way I do it is it's just six pages of regular eight and a half by eleven paper folded in half and stapled. And this is a seventh page, which coincidentally is the middle of the book, which is the pages I need to scan. So I ripped it out and I'm going, well this is weirder than it needed to be. It is. It is. But but yeah, it's it, it was Sixteen years ago, I randomly opened the Bible looking for a lot of red, because the red is the words of Christ, and and got two women grinding and went, well, that's funny, and so I put it in the strip. And then, of course, I told Jeff, and, and you know, because and, for those who don't know, way back 16 to 17 years ago, there was a very long, very protracted, quote-unquote, discussion between Dave and Jeff Seiler and Billy Beach about Tangent and the two women grinding uh, passage. And it was one of these, Jeff and Billy didn't know the, the other one was sending letters to Dave about this, and Dave's just getting deluged with people telling him, no, no, Dave, you're wrong, and here's why you're wrong, and here's why, here's the correct in interpretation. And... <laughs> Finally, you had to send a letter to both of them going, guys, knock it off. Right. And then uh, the actual end on that story was when Billy Beach um, got back to me long after that discussion and went, actually, it turned out that you were right. That uh, one of the definitions of grinding is um, the, the physical process of grinding. He, he was maintaining, no, it's uh, uh, the actual Greek term and whatever it was, um, it, it, it only applies to uh, grinding flour or grinding um, wheat wheat or, or whatever it is that you would be grinding. Uh, you, you're, you're expanding the definition into something that, uh, that it, just, uh, it just doesn't encompass. And uh, I had to give him major marks for the fact that uh, having made a big issue out of this and Jeff Seiler making a big issue out of this and me going, um, sorry, the, the, the way that it adds up, you know, the fact that uh, that verse is left out of, uh, you know, a number of early uh, uh, translations of Mark and the fact that... Uh, when it was put in, another verse was added in. Uh, whoever did that went, uh, no, this this doesn't read the, read the way we want it to read, so we're going to have to either leave it out, or if we put it in, we have to add another verse. And it's like, uh, that's when the Judaic part of me is going, you can't do that to Scripture. You, you can't leave things out or put things in uh, just for the sake of the convenience of what you wanted to say. Oy vey, you Christians, you make, you make me pull my hair up. And I haven't got that much hair, much, much hair left to begin with. <laughs> well, oh yeah, okay, good good, well, good story. I didn't, I didn't know that uh, it had that comic art metaphysics thing. Obviously 
you got swept up into it. Of, uh, oh, this will turn up later on, and this will... Uh, well, uh, I mean, as you said, it was a big deal to Billy, and it was a big deal to Jeff. How big of a deal was it to Jeff? It was such a big deal that after one of your letters ar- arrived, he wrote a 25-page handwritten letter that he mailed off to you, and you, you got it and went, no, Jeff, I'm, I'm not going to read 25 handwritten pages telling me that I'm wrong. You know, no, we're not dealing. And, like, he brought it to space with him and was asking us, all the Yahoos, do you want to read this? And we're all looking like, no, Jeff, no one wants to read your 25-page screed about anything. Well, I don't think that that's true. He's, be, he's become a uh, please hold for Dave Sim legend. Um, True, but I, I mean, if, if, if we keep if we keep doing this, I mean, there's there's I don't know how many of them there are, but there are at least a half dozen uh, twenty five page letters from from Jeff in the Cerebus archive, uh, or there should be um, things things disappear in a weird way around uh, around here in a very in a very random sense, but um, some someday. So someday, Jeff Seiler will have his moment in the sun, and people will be going, uh, "Okay, I, 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 I would like you to proofread this. Here's here's Jeff's original handwritten copy, uh, and I've circled the words that I'm not certain that I've I've transcribed correctly." And uh, the the Jeff Seiler Memorial Society will be will be flourishing, <laughs> and. And, and Dave Sim and Matt Dow will be completely forgotten by that. Uh, you know, there's a part of me that really hopes that happens. <laughs> <laughs> it would make things a lot less complicated. Okay, a couple of couple of shout outs for me um, before before we get rolling here. Uh, one of them is uh, congratulations to uh, David Birdsong's daughter Brittany who got, uh, got engaged and officially eloped uh, January 2nd. And this ties in uh, later on um, with, uh, I, I'm not a father, but I am, I am deeply uh, uh, empathetic and sympathetic toward fathers. And I know that there, there must have been a big part of Birdsong that was going, Brittany has been in the U.S. military for, I forget, how many years she's been in the military. Uh, if she can't find one good man in the entire U.S. military in that time, uh, I just give up. So uh, congratulations to new. Uh, uh, Birdsong is uh, uh, un- uncharacteristically optimistic as a result of uh, Brittany uh, uh, getting married uh, over the holidays and also the fact that he got a lot of sleep on vacation. Um, the only bad news is the new son-in-law, Justin, a Navy aviation mechanic, will be in Okinawa, Japan for around six months, starting sometime this spring. With any luck, he'll only see Taiwan sink and not get dragged down along with it. <laughs> see how fast the case of optimism can be cured? Uh, I got a lot more confidence in the U.S. military than that. I don't think uh, Xi Jinping uh, would dare to uh, to take a step towards uh, towards Taiwan. You, you can overfly somebody's airspace, but 
uh, he, I think he's got a pretty good idea that he'd be chew, uh, fighting off far more than he could chew um, with with Taiwan. Uh, my other shout out is uh, remembering Anita Pointer, who uh, who just died uh, last Saturday, and uh, it was one of those. Um, people ask me all the time, um, what music do you like? Or what music do you listen to when you're drawing? And it's like, uh, I don't listen to music. I, uh, I keep the, uh, the off white house and the studio, uh, completely silent, uh, while I'm working. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I do have a history of music. So, uh, it was one of those situations where I went, Oh, one of the, uh, the Pointer sisters died. Anita died. And it's like, well, that uh, not only leaves, uh, leaves one of them now. It's uh, Anita, Ruth, Bonnie, and June Pointer, uh, born the daughters of a minister who grew up singing in their father's church in Oakland, California. And uh, the effect that happens is I go, what was the Pointer sisters' song? that uh, um, John Brent, who was uh, the DJ at uh, Peter's Place, and then the DJ at Stages, and then much later on at the, at the Flying Dog, and I must have seen him DJ at two or three other places. And um, it's like, oh, point, the Pointer Sisters, there was, a, there was a tune that John played that was, um, a live version. I didn't have the live version. Um, the only version that I had was on the uh, Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack. <laughs> and it's like, you know, uh, Anita dies at, at 74. How did, how did Anita Pointer get to be 74? It's like, Grandpa, uh, Beverly Hills Cop is like 40 years ago. And it's like, ooh, ooh. Anyway, so... Uh, John would play this tune, and it was one of his real barn burners. This is the one that he would save for uh, <coughs> midnight, 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning. And uh, Stages was a real high-tech um, discotheque with the laser lights and, you know, uh, spotlights and uh, laser effects and dry ice and the, the whole thing, three, three rocking levels. Uh, used to be a movie theater, used to be the Odeon, and it's like he would he would uh, uh, sample uh, a couple of, a couple of uh, musical note musical passages out of uh, <clears throat> out of the song in question, and then you would know okay it's coming up ahead, and then uh, he'd go back to uh, uh, Prince or. Uh, we pledge allegiance to the time, or whatever it was, or uh, we don't know. We don't need no water. Let the mother effer burn, burn, mother effer burn, which is everybody singing along to that. And uh, I'm going. Uh, I can't remember what the song was, so it's like I'm going. Okay, what? What were their hits? While well, I'm reading the obituary, no uh, for a hit songs. I'm so excited, and I went. That was the one. <laughs> At that point, uh, Grandpa, who lives in complete silence, to say 
focused on his art and not be distracted from anything, uh, just scripture and just having scripture on his uh, iTunes. Suddenly <laughs> has this world-class sound system in his brain playing, I'm so excited, at about 11. <laughs> so, uh, if you want, uh, uh, people wanting to know, okay, what was, uh, what was the last couple of days for the obituary... Uh, was in the Toronto Star Monday, January second. What, what was uh, what was Grandpa's uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday and Thursday like this week? See if you can find a really, really hardcore. I'm so excited. Pointer Sisters live performance on YouTube and link to it. <laughs> and. If you want to see a barn burner of a of a last song uh, for a concert, um, I think probably the only one that even competes with that is uh, the Rolling Stones' uh, "Brown Sugar." So that's that's my that's my shout out on that one. Uh, the Pointer Sisters also come up a, a little later on in the proceedings, uh, and then inquiring minds want to know. Uh, Kyle Pinion asks, is the remastered last day still set to come out this month? Uh, no. I might hold off for the hardcover, but this is one blasted spot on my bookshelf. Needs filling somehow. And Matt notes, I haven't had a chance to post the four-page facts to Dagan about the hardcover Kickstarter yet. And uh, have you done that at this point? Not yet. I'll probably, I'll probably either put it up tomorrow or else I might just throw it in the videos for this on Saturday. It's kind of a downer. <laughs> it's, uh, wouldn't you agree? It's one of those that came in, I'm like, well, this is a downer, but yeah, okay, I'll get it up. And, th and then as we get to later, Tuesday happened. <laughs> and it's like, well, I can't put this up on Tuesday because Tuesday is something else. Right, right. Yeah, it's one of those, uh, we tried uh, soliciting the last day through Diamond, and then, uh, okay, Dagan will jump on and uh, get ready to do the hardcover. So we'll do, uh, we'll piggyback the two together, the softcover and the hardcover, and let's see if this all comes out in the wash the way it's supposed to. And now... Uh, the cancel date for the purchase order is uh, the end of January, and Dagan is just asking, uh, should I do the Kickstarter? And it's like, uh, no, it's, uh, okay, this didn't work. So uh, we don't really have a plan B. Uh, the best, um, giving you a, a spoiler warning, uh, the best that we can kind of hope for is... Uh, Next time we try and do this, I'm just gonna, Margaret Van Eyne's just gonna take a thousand soft covers. Uh, Dagan will take a thousand hardcovers or 500 hardcovers or however many he's gonna take. And then we'll do the solicitation after that they're printed and do the Kickstarter after that they're printed. And we'll see how that works out. It'll be a lot of upfront money and guesswork on both of our parts but uh, 
months-long delay on on the fulfillment, which is the thing that that I'm getting the most most concerned about, and I know uh, uh, Dagan is getting the most concerned about. So, Kyle, there's there's the answer right there. Uh, The way we tried to do it this time didn't work, so uh, scrub the launch. Uh, we'll we'll try and plan something else, and and hope that uh, that 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 goes a little better. Um, I've now got a plan C in case the I print a thousand, Dagan prints a thousand, or prints five hundred uh, doesn't pan out. That might involve just doing one single hardcover at a time. <laughs> you want to order one of these? That's fine. You, you let us know, and uh, this is what it's going to cost because we're going to print them one at a time, which would be the extreme uh, other end from getting them done uh, through Marquee. Okay. <clears throat> it's, it's a bummer, but at the same time, as you say in the facts and spoiling the facts, you're not a hardcover guy. You really don't care. Yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that's going, uh, if I was a hardcover guy, it would be, oh, this is so disappointing. Um, but not being a hardcover guy, I, I have to keep warning everybody, um, if something goes wrong with the hardcovers, uh, the one guy who is absolutely not going to be heartbroken about it is Dave so. I mean, that's I ordered two copies of the soft cover of the Waverly edition of Foreman Void because somebody was somebody was miss was gonna miss out and it was hey yo I don't have the funds right now but I will in the future I'm like okay I'll order two copies and you'll you can just Travis can pay me when he when he gets the money and when the box arrived I opened it up and it's one soft cover and one hardcover and I'm like well I not really a hardcover guy but this does look really neat now that it's in my hand so I'm gonna keep the hardcover. I'm gonna I'm selling the soft cover as soon as I get an email back saying, "Oh, okay, you know, you know, let me give you your money." And if I don't if I don't hear from the guy, then well, uh, I I don't know what I'm gonna do with the other one. Right. And that might be right. some. That might be somebody going. I really need a hardcover. Like, well, I guess I'll keep the soft cover and make my money back. Right. See, the contrast for me was I got the hardcover in. Uh, you know, just send me one copy, and I've got the number one out of however many he printed of them. And it's like, flip mm, through it, <laughs> turned it over to the back, looked at the spine, uh, looked at the, uh, uh, the the inset drawing, cloth binding, and it's like, it's a hardcover. I'm just not a hardcover guy. Um I think a lot of people were relying on, well, once he sees the puppy, he'll change his mind about puppies in a hurry. It's like, mm, no, I'm just not a puppy guy. I have nothing, nothing against people who, who, love, who love puppies, but uh, Grandpa, Grandpa is not a puppy guy. Well, that's, I'm, I'm not a dog guy. And the, the kids keep going, you know, Natasha especially, is, I'm going to get a dog when I grow up. I'm like, that's great. As soon as you move out of my house, you can have as many dogs as you want. I'm not living with a dog, but so the kids, the kids know that I, you know, I'm, 
not a dog guy, but we'll be out and I'll see a dog and, oh, I love dogs. And, the, and they're like, you don't like dogs? I love dogs. My favorite part is when they go away with their owner and I don't have to deal with them anymore. <laughs> I'm on the same page with you on that one. Well, yeah. the, the other one is every time I see a dog, I'm like, oh, look at the puppy. And people will be like, oh, no, this is a very old dog. I'm like, every dog's a puppy to me. And, and the dogs perk up. They're like, oh, I'm a puppy? Yeah, I'm cute. And then they go away and back to their old age dog life. I don't care. Right, right. Okay, moving on to uh, Travis Axt. Hi, Matt. was just reading a comic from 1986 and thought the artist may have been going for a Dave Sim as barbarian look for the character. Thought you may enjoy it. And, uh, well, I didn't, I, I didn't read the, uh, page three, the the, uh, the splash page, but uh, what did you think? Do you think he's got a case to make, to be made for this, or is he, is he really stretching a point? I couldn't find what I was looking for, but I remember there was one of your early self-portraits was in, I think, a service archive issue, and when I saw the images that he sent, I went, yeah, I can see, you know, young Dave Sim, and, and, then, I'm, and then I'm thinking, I'm like, uh, you know, as I look at the cover, I'm going, eh, it's one of those, the art style is just abstract enough that you could project, I mean, you could easily say it's a young John Travolta, too. <laughs> you know, I mean... Yeah, all of us folks from the 70s and 80s all look, all look alike. That's, that's not, uh, that's not racist and that's not discrimination. That's, we, we all did look well, alike. Well, I mean, I mean, it, it it does have a Dave Sim quality to it, but then again, you know, it's like the art style is such that you know, it it it's there's there what detail is there is just sparse enough that you can you know it's it's kind of a Rorschach test of you know if you have Dave Sim in the mind, hey, that looks that looks like Dave. My thing is, as I was looking at, it, I'm like the name Brad Moore, who's the artist, sounds familiar, and I'm like. Is this somebody who did something else and like had stuff in the back of service and you know like a unique story or a or a you know a, a, a some you know self published thing that got plugged and then I, so then I'm thinking well is this going to be one of these Dave has this book right um, as you say Brad Moore that's that's ringing a bell somewhere with me as well I'm not sure where the bell is ringing or why it's ringing but. Uh, that's, uh, I, I hadn't even noticed the, the name of the artist. The, um, the shot of the three girls, uh, uh, would-be heroes are thick as flies, and you were among the easy ones. And it's like, uh, yeah, I was, uh, definitely in 1986, I was a barbarian, but uh, I didn't think that I was a barbarian. Uh, I thought I was as, civilized as you could possibly be and uh, a lot of that had to do with um, being um, <laughs> as they say just uh, just a little too easy uh, like th there, there were people that would try and call my attention to it um, and it's like I remember uh, I remember Colleen Doran saying to me one time at uh, at a party or something where it was just two of us talking and she had her uh, 
to talk to you about this um, voice on, and it was um, you. You realize that that these girls are bragging about sleeping with you, and you're not bragging about sleeping with them. And it's like, uh, I suppose so. What's your point? <laughs> it's like, well, that is the point. That don't don't you don't you understand that that's that's not a good thing. Um, and it's like, well, no, it's, uh, it, that sounds like uh, it pays to advertise. And it's like, well, that's, that's barbaric. Can't you, can't you understand that that's barbaric? So it was the same kind of thing as um, when I would try to talk to uh, uh, Chester about prostitution. The... Uh, you know, somebody needs to talk to you about this, and okay, I'm going to give it a try. Uh, you do know that this is wrong. Well, no. What's wrong about it? Well, it's prostitution. That's, what 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 don't you not get about uh, prostitution being bad? What what do you not get about um, being um, a, a completely standardless skirt chaser? Uh, is not a good thing. And we know that it's not a good thing because uh, most people aren't that. And most people aren't that because they know that it's not a good thing. And uh, Colleen made absolutely no uh, uh, no more impression on me than, uh, than I did on, uh, on Chester Brown in, uh, in the conversation. So... Uh, but of course, it, it, you know, now it's, uh, well, now I know the difference. It's uh, fornication and adultery are definitely uh, not on the menu, uh, not even on the potential menu. It's not that I haven't found the right person to uh, fornicate with. Um, that's, I, I, I just don't do that. The same as, uh, same as I don't, uh, don't hire prostitutes. But it took... It took a, a long time uh, to get to get to that point. I I must say. Um, and, and okay, moving on. Go ahead. And you had a lot of fun getting there. <laughs> well, yes, but there's there's a. Uh, uh, it it's the it's great to have a wonderful birthday with lots of prizes and pinatas and bounce houses and stuff until the end of the party when it's time to clean this mess up. Right, right. I mean, it's the same as, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a funny line, but, uh, you know, like Woody Allen's, uh, uh, say what you will about, uh, bisexuality. It, it definitely doubles your odds of getting a date for Saturday night. <laughs> it's like, well, yes, that's, uh, don't you see how that, it's funny because it is disgusting. Um, uh, his other line was, uh, uh, empty, uh, empty sex with a stranger is an empty experience, but as empty experiences go, it's one of the better ones. Um, okay. Uh, moving on to Larry Wooten greetings and, and thank you, Larry, for, uh, the off white house stickers again. Um, especially for overdoing it on the off-white house stickers. Uh, Rolly and I are finding more and more uses for those uh, day after day after day. And uh, ne never would have 
thought about getting them for myself uh, or getting them for our Van Eye. And uh, uh, everybody, everybody just thinks they're the, they're the coolest thing and, and the foremost among them. And I have, I have Larry Wooten to thank for that. Uh, Sandy Batwell for coming up with the design that Larry Wooten ended up using, but uh, uh, Larry Larry Wooten for the for the execution on that. I have two pieces that I picked up secondhand and was curious if Dave remembered anything about them. Um, curious if the Space Beaver was done as a gift during a convention while sitting next to each other and chatting or something like that. Um, well, first of all, let's, uh, let's talk about the, um, Gerhard piece. That's very, very early in, uh, in the collaboration, um, 1984. So it's, uh, uh, the first time that we collaborated was the first fifth that was uh, uh, printed in Epic magazine. This would have been one of the ones where uh, wasn't quite ready to do another color story because a, a story does take up time. It's uh, okay. Uh, we'll try and. We'll try and shoehorn that in somewhere because Epic is a good place to be seen. Um, but let's work on uh, Gerhard actually fitting into the monthly comic book and uh, get a comfort level there before we start um, really ramping up the production. But we did do a few of these. I. I remember uh, going to signings, uh, the first few signings that Gerhard and I went, in, went to, and uh, going, all right, let's, let's see how this does. So I, I would take, we would, we would bring the art materials and I would sit down and do a service of some kind, leaving room for a background. Yeah. 
So it looks to me like that was one of the earlier examples of doing that. There were a few examples of it that uh, Archie Goodwin ran as a portfolio in, uh, in Epic Magazine. So it was something that we did for a time and then um, it was, uh, they, they go for more money, but uh, black and white is faster to do. So we're probably better off just sticking with the black and white because we can get more black and white ones done uh, in the space of time that it takes to do one of these color ones. It's, uh, we, we had a, you know, you have a mental taxi meter of how long it's taking you to do this and how much you're going to need to charge to uh, validate how much time you're putting in on this. And this was a brand new taxi meter. So it was, well, okay, let's, Let's do this, and then it's, mm, I think we're going to get uh, more dollars per mile for uh, a black and white uh, foreground and black and white background, just, uh, you know, in, in people's sketchbooks and, and stuff like that. Uh, but we, we'd, go, we'd go back and forth on that. So uh, I would say that that's the, the noteworthy aspect is this is definitely very early in the collaboration. And this is, uh, you know, the collaboration started with uh, me doing black and white, Gerard doing black and white backgrounds, and then watercolor, watercoloring the whole thing. Um, so it's something we did for a period of time and then revisited, like we did the, the big uh, uh, samurai uh, piece from uh, or uh, Mid Ohio Con um, as as a benefit, and that was one of those. Okay, if we're going to do this, let's do one really really good one instead of trying to do uh, however many we can do, like four or five in a day, and auctioning those off. And do they go for enough money to to validate it? It's like the the full-sized uh, samurai piece that's on the back cover of one of the Cerebus issues. Um, it's uh, it's a good size. It's definitely, you know, samurai stuff is hot. It's got a dragon on it that Gerard did. It's watercolored, and Gerard actually framed it uh, at, at the convention, and it went for, I think, $600, which is a lot of money at that time. It was, uh, that's, that's a, a good contribution to, uh, to the March of Dimes charity. And uh, it's a good price for a Dave Simon Gerard collaboration. That would be a major steal at, at this point. But that's what, uh, that's the difference that uh, the 30 years will make. Right. I mean, was that piece also in the uh, Epic portfolio? I know there's a service as a samurai in the Epic portfolio, but I don't know if it's that particular piece. No, no, this was this was one that was only on the back cover, and 
I think it was an art dealer in uh, in Ohio, um, who I I won't name, who uh, bought it, and it's as far as I know, it's still in his collection. <laughs> once once an art dealer gets something in his collection and decides to hang on to it, if uh, if he's any kind of a uh, competent art dealer, and this guy is a very competent art dealer, um, it, it's, it, you'll have to pry it out of his cold, dead hands. Mm-hmm. So, and we, because it was done at the show, uh, there was no way that we were going to get it uh, photographed uh, so that we could do a poster or a print out of it, which would have been a, a really good idea. It would be much easier to do now, then we'd have to send it to a color separator overnight or something um, to get the separations done. So if, if, if copies are ever done of that, it'll be way, way, way up ahead. <laughs> it was a really nice piece. It was a really nice piece. I was very, very, very happy with the way it came out. And Gerard was very happy with, uh, with the way that it came out. And I am still using the uh, Jarvis hates this, hates this PR crap. Um, I think this was somebody bringing up uh, a copy of his comic book. That would happen. And saying, uh, can I get a picture of Cerebus with my character? And... I was always happy to do it. It's like there's uh, uh, a great challenge as a cartoonist to um, see somebody's character for the first time. And, you know, here it is. They gave, gave me his comic book, and I can look through it and go, okay, uh, what is he trying to do here? And, uh, What's, what's my version of doing that? I still enjoy doing that. I, I still uh, enjoy um, ha- having a crack at, uh, at somebody else's character. But <laughs> it always struck me as this really wouldn't be Cerebus's kind of thing. Why are you sticking Cerebus with somebody else's character again? Leave Cerebus alone. So uh, I, I, always, I always tend to put that that word balloon or thought balloon in uh, service service hates this uh, this PR crap. Um, it looks about 1984, 85. So no, it doesn't doesn't ring a bell in terms of do I remember sitting next to this guy? I can't rule that out that I was sitting next to the guy. But I think it was a situation where he said, um, I would like uh, a sketch of service uh, with my character. Uh, what would you charge for that? And by that point, it was, uh, you tell me how much you want to spend, and that's how good the picture is going to be. So this looks to be about probably a uh, $25, $30 sketch from the time period. And it was still at the time when you could pretty much read my signature. Which is which is definitely not true anymore. Uh, 
On to page nine, uh, Ellen and Alex Raymond's 1934 Christmas card. Yes, when <laughs> it was uh, Alex Raymond, uh, Alex Raymond's vision of um, who he and Ellen were, and. Um, and definitely that they were both very, very good Catholics, and they were both in this together. Um, Dale Arden uh, dressed as Flash Gordon, which is, mm, wouldn't want to go there, um, either at the time or currently, but obviously it was something that uh, Alex Raymond thought had, uh, had a certain charm to it. And uh, it's a gorgeous piece. Um, what a difference! What a difference! Uh, Fourteen or fifteen years makes in terms of uh, no. Uh, remember, um, till death us do part. And uh, for richer or poor, uh, you know. Um, in good health and bad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when you actually meant that at, uh, at the upper level of your thinking, um, you think you've gotten more sophisticated, but uh, you've just, you just lost, uh, lost sight of, uh, of your priorities. I hate to say, but uh, I think in Alex Raymond's case, uh, that would be, that would be the case. Um, Oliver Simonson found a post from one Lauren Gray. Oh, I read this one, yeah. So yeah, I was digging through some comics at a flea market. Can you stand it at a flea market? and saw a corner of this sticking out of a stack of magazines next to it. Asked the lady whose booth it was, you know what this is, right? She said, yeah, but it's yellow. Can you stand it? And sold it to me for a ridiculous, I mean, ridiculously low amount. She obviously did not know it was original art from Cerebus number two, his second appearance, and it's a beautiful page at that, not just some filler panel. Mind still blown. <laughs> Matt says it was page 20, and I hate Lauren. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, at least he was nice enough not to tell us what the ridiculously low price was. Well, uh, Oliver shared it to the service Facebook group, and I commented, congratulations, and a gif of, Al of uh, Andrew Garfield saying, I literally hate you right now. <laughs> it's... It's one of those, you know, you hear these stories and you're like, oh, that's made up, that didn't happen. No, no, sometimes you go to the flea market and you find the Holy Grail and you and you manage to walk it back to your car. And I'm sure Lauren's probably spent the next two days just staring at the page going, I didn't really buy this for cheap. You know, this, this is one of those uh, service archive portfolio pages that's a reprint. It's not the original page from 1978. And yeah, yeah, it is. You, you, you got one of them once-in-a-lifetime deals, you know. 
Ensure the hell out of it because you're going to get hit by lightning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, uh, but I, I have to, I have to admire, again, his restraint, first of all, for not saying what the rel- ridiculously low price was and then not adding to it. Well, speaking of original Dave Simard, I don't know if it's in the latest Heritage catalog, but right now they're auctioning off the entire seven page on the back of a pro story. Really? I I put a bid in and 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 my lowball amount got blown out of the water. I, th- I forget where. I think it's up to like two or three hundred bucks right now. Uh there's another auction that's got five or six pages of Beavers art from the two issues of Quack that had the Beavers. It's not sequential. You know, it's like four and five from one story and one, three, and six from the other. Uh, coming up for auction, if it hasn't already started, is the original cover art to Oktoberfest number one. Holy fuck, Okay. Um, where, wherever, <clears throat> wherever, uh, Harry Kramer's artwork went, went to, that's, uh, it's, it's now coming home to roost. I believe all three, three of these are from the Darren Shan collection, so Darren must have got a hold of them at some point. Right. right. I saw... Yeah, the, uh, the, the, on the back of a pro is just on sketchbook paper. I couldn't even afford art paper at that time. It was just, uh... Well, okay, this is, it says uh, uh, art sketchpad, so I will do art in my sketchpad. And uh, it's just for a fanzine, and I'm not getting paid for this, so I'm, I'm definitely not shelling out for, uh, for illustration board or anything like that. There, there's this part of me that, when, if I thought I could win it, I would go for the Oktoberfest number one cover, and then get a good scan of it and pay Gerhard to put a background on it. <laughs> what does the actual North Pole look like? And can Gerhard put it in behind Uncle Hans? Well, well, it's one of those, you know, Gerhard, what kind of background can I get for, you know, the pennies that I have? And I, I know at a certain point it's going to be, well, I'll make it blue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, ten bucks will get you ten bucks worth. Right, right. that I like is they're going through Heritage, so if Kevin gets there and scans them, you'll have copies of it. Right, right. And that's, yeah. That's one, of those, that's one of those where you think, 
Well, you know, it's great. You know, there's an original page from uh, issue 27 that's that's coming through. That'll be good. You know, we can we can put that in the next version of the printing with the remastering. And that's like, and on the back of a pro is there, and and maybe we'll we'll just not send Dave those files because he might not want to look at them. <laughs> oh no, no, I can I can look at just about anything at this point. It's. Uh, 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 I, 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 it's, it's, that's, that's how I learned. So uh, everything has, has that value to it. There was definitely a bunch of years there where I didn't want to, uh, want to see this stuff. It's uh, probably the most painful uh, to this day is how's your beaver? I, I still don't like flipping through that one if I can possibly help it. Uh, I had a, a stray thought um, just Speaking out about Oktoberfest comics with uh, um, the Turtles 8 Kickstarter coming up. How many more sleeps have we got till the Turtles 8 Kickstarter? Uh, 55 or 54. Right, right. Good. That's, oh, that, uh, that's the other thing I forgot. They also, at Heritage, are auctioning off, and, and as I said when I posted about it, who's got money? Oh, no, you don't. The original cover painting to Turtles 8. Really? Kevin Eastman gave it to Richard Corbin as a thank you because Renette was inspired by a Richard Corbin girl. And now that Richard Corbin has died, they're auctioning it off. And it's going for like $80,000. Okay, well, uh, I, I have a, a very happy um, inner 30-year-old Dave Sim going, no way, uh, that, that is so cool. I hope, uh, I hope Kevin has, has the same reaction. That was very nice of him to, to give it to Richard Carr. Well, that, there's also, I got an email today, there's a Kevin Eastman original painting it's it's a cover for, of a human ninja so it's it's a it's a jungle setting there's a bunch of enemies coming t out of the jungle and in the foreground is the is a ni human ninja hiding behind a tree and it's a bare-chested guy with a sword and a turtle's mask and that also got given to Richard Corbin and I'm just like I don't know what kind of relationship they had, but it must have been real fun to be Richard Corbin getting original Kevin Eastman paintings in the mail, going, oh, that's nice, and then, like, setting it aside and going back to work. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, Richard Corbin loomed much larger in, uh, in Kevin Eastman's life than Kevin Eastman did in Richard Corbin's life, but, uh, I'm sure he had he had no idea that. Uh, well, if if you're concerned uh, about the widow and uh, how she's going to do when you're not there to provide for her, turns out that uh, that the really enthusiastic, bushy-tailed kid from uh, from New England uh, that's going to be that's going to be a major uh, major part of that somewhere up ahead, which is another thing that that we never quite know. Okay, uh, I'm going to have to take a break for my last prayer time, and then uh, we're coming back for uh, Michael R. of Easton, Pennsylvania, and Steve Peters. Okay.
Talk to you in a few minutes. Okay, that works. Bye. Hello again, Dave. Hello again, Matt. Okay. Um, we're going to... Uh, we're going to move on to Michael R. of Easton, Pennsylvania. What would please hold be without Michael R. of Easton, Pennsylvania? And uh, I actually got Roly to uh, scan the front of the uh, Christmas card that I got from uh, <laughs> the R. family. I'm just going to go over here and grab it. So, this is the front of the Christmas card that, uh, that you'll, uh, I imagine you'll be putting on the screen while, uh, uh, while we're talking about this. And uh, this was another one of those uh, empathy situations where uh, I'm, not, I'm not a husband, uh, I'm not a boyfriend, uh, but I definitely have uh, empathy for fathers uh, in their father situation, um, Michael was was in the was in the same situation with. Uh, while you're looking looking at them on the screen, there's uh, there's Michael on the left, and then uh, his wife Grace, and then uh, Lil Grace, their daughter, and uh, Brock, their son-in-law, and that's. Uh, uh, Brock and Lil Grace's baby, uh, Michael's uh, grand grandchild, Zoe, and of course uh, the uh, Seraphis cutout from uh, from Funny Pages, the one that wasn't used in Funny Pages because that part had to be uh, reshot. But uh, this this is this is what the cutout looked like uh, uh, in the movie. Um, Seraphis Charlie Brown shirt. So uh, definitely the uh, the visiting Nazi in uh, in the R family, uh, Charlie Brown shirt Cerebus. I thought that was very funny on uh, on Owen Klein's part that he specifically wanted uh, that shot that shot of Cerebus um, for funny patrons. It's like uh, believe me, if there's any Cerebus that no one would ever want to have in their comic store. It's, uh, it's Charlie Brown shirt, uh, Cerebus. But uh, same situation, uh, Michael would, would say from time to time, mentioning that, uh, that Brock and Lil Grace are still together, but uh, no, no sign of a wedding yet. And it's like, uh, it's, it's one of those situations where every father wants his daughters happily and safely married. They don't want them just shacked up with somebody. And uh, I, the, the, the most uncomfortable experience that I had with that was uh, one of the limo drivers for uh, Emerald Limousine, uh, who was a new driver, and I hadn't met him before. And uh, he picked me up and, uh, and introduced himself. And he said, uh, uh, you, you know my daughter. And I went, oh, I do. And he said, yes. And he named her name. And I thought, 
Oh, that's one that I just, uh, uh, not in quotation marks, just banged a few times, and then that was it. And it's like, uh, here's her father driving me someplace, and it's like, uh, that's that's really uncomfortable. I, it's uh, you don't you don't want to ever be in the situation of uh, being forced to recognize that you did that to another man's pride and joy daughter, uh, despoiling her, uh, in effect. And that's exactly what I was doing. And it's like, well, okay, you've all you've always done that. Like everyone that you slept with, that you had absolutely no intention of, uh, of marrying or even living with or even dating for any length of time, that's what you were doing to another man's daughter. Don't, don't, don't do stuff like that. So getting to uh, uh, Michael's uh, question. Hi, Dave. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Michael. I just started rereading Guy's phone book and said to myself, self, Dave's British accents for Prince Keith, Richard George, Harrison Starkey, plus everyone else's written accents is to me dead on perfect. Um, did you act out the characters first by talking to yourself? Or did you write out what the character uh, is going to say and then modify the written words to sound like the character you wanted to portray in the scene? Uh, well, the process there was uh, definitely method acting mentally uh, the character. It's, uh, I, uh, I would get the voice in my head and certainly, um, the Mick Jagger voice was always a dominant voice in my head because it's it's a great character. I mean, Mick Jagger is an actual person, but who Mick Jagger uh, presents as and the Mick Jagger that uh, everybody imagines that they know mentally, which is, I'm sure, completely different from who Mick Jagger is, is a great character. And I always wanted to write um, you know, a, a movie or a television show for, uh, for Mick Jagger. When he, uh, they did a pretty good job on Saturday Night Live writing Mick Jagger um, uh, when he was uh, on uh, uh, Dan Aykroyd doing, uh, doing Tom Snyder's uh, program, doing his Tom Snyder impression. But uh, it, it wasn't really the Mick Jagger character. It was, it was a little too uh, um, trying not to lean too far into who Mick Jagger was. So it was a matter of, okay, uh, what would they say and how would they say it? And that got sketched at the same time that, uh, that I was writing the dialogue. So it was, it was definitely an interaction between Okay, um, here's, uh, it, it, well, we'll simplify it just down to uh, uh, Mick and Keith with uh, um, the uh, Church and State Volume 2 uh, sequence. And, um, okay, how, how do they interact and what is it that they're going to uh, say to each other? And um, then... 
having said this, what do they look like? And how close do we have to be looking at them uh, to really convey the humor of the iconic character? Uh, again, you know, Mick Jagger is, whoever he actually is, is Mick Jagger only when, you know, he's around himself and uh, people that he actually knows, you know, family and friends. Um, Keith Richards is Keith Richards, which is completely different from... Uh, Again, the iconic Keith Richards. Uh, I think that's got to be one of the toughest things about being in a relationship with somebody who is that famous, where uh, this this isn't the person that I know that everybody else feels like they they own a part of that person. So, uh, and because I was doing comics, I would I would never actually act out um, the character because there wasn't going to be sound on the page. Um, it's just written, so it, it had to be written as accurately as possible, and then uh, the, the dialogue had to interact with um, the character on the page and the panel-to-panel -panel, um, uh, progression uh, had to be developed simultaneously. So uh, when uh, you go on to say, uh, boy, I would have liked to be in the room watching Garrett listen to you trying to capture the accent by speaking the voices, then jotting the words down with the quote, quote correct, unquote, spelling, laugh out loud. Uh, you'd have to ask Gerhard, but I'm pretty sure I never really did that. Um, I, I uh, if if I if I was doing the voices in front of him, then uh, I wouldn't be getting the reaction from him that I would get when he actually uh, read the pages, uh, because he'd be reacting as much to whatever it is that I had been acting out in the studio as he would to what's on the page, and it's like, well, we're not. We're not selling me acting out in the studio. We're, we're selling what's on the page, which is ties in with the thing of, uh, you know, the studio being absolutely silent while I'm working. It's uh, uh, people are going to fill the silence with whatever they want to fill the silence with. But uh, in terms of my participation in their reading experience, uh, it's going to be completely silent. It's, uh, it's all on the page. And uh, having said that, I appreciate the, uh, the compliment. The, uh, the written accent is, to me, dead on perfect. Uh, <laughs> I, you, know, you have to realize that uh, it, it may be dead on perfect to you as an American, and it may be dead on perfect to me as a Canadian, but uh, for a lot of Brits, this just makes their flesh crawl. Um, it's like... Don't do that. I mean, you, you, you really don't know what you're doing, and uh, you, really, you really don't know what you're doing in a major way. So it's just, uh, it's like fingernails on the chalkboard. Um, the, the example that is always cited is uh, Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins, um, doing, doing Bert, I think the character was, with the, with the Cockney accent. And it's like, 
that destroyed uh, American-British relations for decades because they would play Mary Poppins uh, every uh, either Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve on, on the BBC. And it would just make everybody's molars grind. Um, Dick Van Dyke's Bert is an extreme example of that because, um, first of all, uh, Mary Poppins was made by Disney. It was uh, an American studio. And it was uh, Dick Van Dyke was coming off of um, the run of the Dick Van Dyke show, which was the most successful TV show at the time. And consequently, nobody was really in the situation having signed him up to play Bert to say, uh, your cocky accent is really bad. Can we get you a coach that can that can tell you? Uh, even uh, if, if you if you start thinking about it, you know too too thoroughly, you go. Uh, Julie Andrews' molars must have been grinding, but you know she's she's Julie Andrews. He's Dick Van Dyke. Uh, Never the Twain shall meet. Uh, it's not her place to say to a big star like Dick Van Dyke. Your coffee accent is terrible. Uh, you, uh, he really does need a voice coach. The, the, the lead female in a major production like that doesn't say that to the lead male. It's, uh, uh, you, uh, uh, it would be up to the producer or the director or whoever it is or uh, Walt Disney to say uh, something has to be done about that accent. Um, It'd be interesting. I hope that some some of our our British listeners will be uh, will be listening to this, and we'll let you know exactly how bad um, the the accents are. And uh, just rubbing it in, <laughs> I've, I've pulled out Church and State Volume Two because I am still I am still proud of the dialogue. I am still. Uh, proud of the uh, phonetic transcription, transcription, which is reasonably accurate, I think. And uh, so here we are, starting on, on page 695, the splash page of flying off the handle at oblique angles. I was wondering if he was coming back or not. Who's your friend? Don't try and humor me, or I've gone dotty. How do you mean? Seeing things. Giant bugs. Ah, I see. I tried to tell him, son. But he thinks I'm a figment of his imagination. With a talking head. Where is Billy Artie? Audio-visual, that is. So are you boys in town for the secret sacred wars? Secret sacred wars. What's that? What, I say, what are the secret sacred wars? Why, it's the culmination, son, the nexus point, the hole in the donut, the event of the millennium, the greatest story ever told, son. And you, I say, you are there. Cool. Sounds like a bit of a bash. You want to go? Yeah. Where'd you find that then? Beyond the address, 
not supposed to last until breakfast tomorrow. If I'm going to a bash, I'm not being going straight, am I? Why? <laughs> oh, Barney, Keith, you haven't been straight since 1409. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, I forgot. So, there you go. It's, uh, I, I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed writing it. I enjoyed drawing it. Um, but definitely that's one of those, uh, there, are, there are much better voices for somebody to have in their head uh, as, a, uh, as a dominant note than uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And uh, I speak from experience on that, which is one of those, um, you know, it, it, they, really, they really took it far, far to an extreme extent. I mean, how do you atone for uh, their satanic majesty's request and uh, sympathy for the devil? It's, uh, um, it, it was an attempt on, uh, on I think, Keith's part on, uh, on Voodoo Lounge to do uh, Blinded by Rainbows. But uh, mm, you, 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 you were way too far over in the discussion, and uh, you didn't. Uh, you never really made your way all the way back. And everybody has what everybody has that they're going to uh, bring before God on Judgment Day. And uh, what choices Mick Jagger made, what choices Keith Richards made. Um, I, I wouldn't want to be bringing that before God on Judgment Day. Just speaking personally. Well, the classic is Keith, uh, did his autobiography, and <clears throat> supposedly, when his dad died, he took some of his dad's ashes and mixed it with, with some cocaine and did a line of coke, and, you know, it's in the book, and everybody's like, that's so shocking, and when he's getting interviewed, he's like, it was a joke. Obviously, I didn't do that. And everybody's going, no, Keith, we know you did. <laughs> you know, he's, 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 saying, he's saying, oh, no, it was a joke. I didn't actually do that. Nobody would do that. It's like, yeah, Keith, we think you did that. Yes, yes. And what, what does that tell you? Like, that's, uh, if, if you've gone that far over, uh, there's, no, there's, there's, no, there's no coming back from that. So, uh Yes, anything, anything that you make a joke about, you're going to have uh, you're going to have trouble convincing people that no, you're not that bad. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, but uh, if there's if there's anybody in a category that we would think of as being that bad, if Keith Richards isn't at the top of the list, he's definitely he's definitely near the top of the list. So there's uh, there's the answer on that one. Uh, Michael R. And uh, thank you for the Christmas card. Um, I, I will uh, I will treasure it. Just it's it's just like it's just like being part of the family. Uh, the uh, the Charlie Brown shirt, Cerebus Nazi, that uh, that I have inside of me uh, in the bosom of your family. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> 
seeing when I'm looking at it. Uh, and the last one is going to be uh, Steve Peters. Very nice of you to uh, uh, forward that one and say, okay, anybody else gets gets bumped to February. But uh, we we do make special allowances for Steve Peters well, because he's first of all he's a creative genius. I think uh, I think we can both agree on that. Yeah, I actually uh, his last Kickstarter, I he was running out of gas, and the Kickstarter might not make it, so he released a couple. He's got some blank sketch covers, and I bid on one in the past, and I still haven't gotten it because he, he COVID happened and and all sorts of stuff, and it, it's fine. Like I'm I'm not in any rush for Steve to rush this to me. You know, take your time, Steve. But I'm he released more of them, and I bought a second one. And he sent me a message going, oh, yeah, what cover do you want? And I haven't responded because I'm just thinking, what cover do I want him to do with his characters? And so it's, it's like every time I get a message from Steve about anything, I just feel guilty. Like, oh, yeah, I got to get back to Steve. I keep forgetting about Steve. But when Steve shows up, it's like this ray of sunshine because you're right. Steve is just great. Yes. Yes. It's... Uh, um uh, particularly uh, because he, he is talking about uh, music here, about writing a song. I hope that, uh, I don't know how you would sell it in this day and age because uh, music circulates uh, a lot more freely even than, than, than comics and, and illustrations do. But, uh, man, you know, the fact that, that you, do, you can do a whole CD and draw the comics adaptation of it and it all came from the same guy that's uh that's just mind-blowing and i'm, I'm sure uh steve is is more than happy not to hear from you it's like as long as he doesn't hear from you as to what you want then he doesn't have to do it well i think he wants to hear from me to get it out of the way because he, you know, he wants to clear the deck for the next one right right well Different guys are different ways on that. I have to admit that uh, any kind of uh, obligation that I'm committed to, like the uh, the video for the Portuguese translation of Cerebus, uh still haven't heard heard back from uh, uh, from Brazil about uh, about that one. I don't know if that's because of the uh, uh, that Bolsonaro de Silva. Um, election was man you talk about red state versus blue state uh, 51% to 49% that's got to be a very very tense country at this point and is probably affecting uh, everybody's schedule and everybody's state of mind but so long as I don't hear from them I don't have to do the video and I'm not I'm not behind on the video and uh I'm not too proud to admit that, that I'm that way and just about anybody who's, who's doing uh, commission pieces uh, is that way at, at some level or another. So Steve writes, can you expound on the significance of Mungu Makono? Why you latched onto it initially? I'm assuming it was in Mary Hemingway's diary. Yes, it was and why it was that the phrase uh, became so significant to Cerebus later that it drove him batty for a while. Uh, 
I'm working on a new song. It was one of those things that just wrote itself, at least the music part of it. I spent some time figuring out what the theme would be, what it would be called, and again, it was one of those things where I knew if you wait long enough, it'll come to you. And the answer was Mongo Makono. So if you can give uh, any thoughts on that, uh, it might help me out with the lyrics. Um, I'm hoping that you can uh, just sort of put up some images from the whole uh, Mongo Makono uh, plane crash uh, sequence. And this was one of those, I mean, Steve is also a, uh, an extremely spiritual guy, um, has, is, in front, my frames of reference is probably a little closer to paganism than to monotheism, but uh, definitely intends to be a good monotheist. And I don't know, uh, none of us know how that works. Um, does, how much does it count that you had uh, good intentions? We know what the road to hell is paved with. Um, but that's that's above all of our pay scales. It's, it's God that decides whose intentions were actually good and who was just kidding themselves, um, I assume. So because this starts going all over the place or has the potential to go all over the place and we're coming up on, uh, on the two-hour mark, um, so trying to trying to bring this in for a landing, I thought, okay, this is this is one of those ones where I'm going to type out the answer, and uh, that's what I did uh, this afternoon. So, Mungu, Mungu Makono, God in the hand of God. It's a fusion, I infer, of primal African theology subsumed within Islam, like Allahu Akbar, God is greatest. Uh, this is the proper reaction of human beings to terrifying enormity, which the Hemingway's plane crash constitutes. In the face of terrifying enormity, call God to mind, out loud, vehemently, and with deference, humility, and subservience. Uh, I would assume someone among the Kenyan natives said it, and everyone else followed suit. To the Hemingways, that reaction was evidence of simple-mindedness and the inferiority of black Africans to New York City sophisticates like themselves. Superstition. Both of those are perception choices. The first, I infer good, and the second, I infer bad. It isn't, I infer, God's literal hand, but it is, I infer, the best illustration of the answer to the old canard Quote, is God sufficiently omnipotent to create a rock big enough that even he can't lift it? Unquote. Theoretically, as in I would theorize, that's what the physical universe is. God is omnipresent in spirit everywhere in the physical universe. The physical universe is more real to physically incarnated beings like us than God is. You have to knowingly and willfully connect your spirit to God's spirit, to connect with him. And most spirits will choose not to. Many are called, few are chosen. God could
constructed the universe in such a way that he can't elevate all of the spirits within it unless they connect on their side. Choosing God is your best choice, which brings us back to good choices and bad choices. The hand of God is a zero or one proposition where you make all the decisions. Ernest Hemingway's reaction, Ernest Hemingway's reaction to the plane crash was to choose to get drunk and acquiesce in being surrounded by Hemingway's sycophants who followed suit. Getting drunk is the worst thing that you can do with a concussion. It's also the worst choice you can make in the face of terrifying enormity. But it's what Hemingway chose. Hemingway was over halfway between his first African safari and his self-inflicted death by suicidal shotgun blast. He had made a number of choices in his life, most of them bad. The first plane crash was, I infer, a warning which he ignored, which led to the second plane crash. The two plane crashes happening that close together, emphasizing the critical nation, nature of where he was in his lifespan. Incapable of making good choices, the badness of his first choice led to his second choice and the badness of his second choice sealed his fate. The second choice being to also ignore the warning. He was irretrievable and irredeemable by his own choice. Winning the Nobel Prize for Literature was Ill irrelevant id stuff, like lighting a sparkler while you're on the Titanic's foredeck as it's going down. He had, a, he had chosen a bad end and a bad end he would have both in this life and, I infer, in the next. I see reading scripture aloud as a signal beacon from an otherwise lost aircraft. You and I could discuss John's gospel, Steve, and it's just gibble, gibble, gibble on both sides. But if you and I both read John Gos John's gospel aloud, then we're actually participating in the closest we have to God's actual presence in our world the means by which God chose to reveal himself. Both our signal beacons are sending the same signal when we stick to scripture. The idea isn't to understand it, I don't think. It's to send it. Participating in it causes you to make better choices. The better your choices, the fewer bad choices you make. David Birdsong has been reading John's Gospel aloud in its entirety every Sunday. I read it aloud in its entirety every Monday and Wednesday. Maybe someday I'll stop and he'll be the only one. Maybe someday he'll stop and I'll be the only one. Or maybe others will join us. Maybe others have already joined us. As I wrote to David, the important thing is to look at what you're choosing over John's gospel. I know David was concerned about Christmas falling on a Sunday this year, breaking his streak. In our, in our society, the, to me, anti-religious temptation to gorge yourself on bad food is always there, along with excessive materialism. It's what Christmas is in our society. It's very tough to pull away from, speaking from 20 years of experience. Brittany getting married, and that being a surprise, would be a tough one for a dad. Not being a dad, I side with the Koran, quote, your wealth and your children are only a temptation, unquote. 
I hope he managed to celebrate his only daughter's marriage. But I do think reading John's Gospel aloud was the wiser choice if he had to make a choice between the two, faith and endurance. For my part, I fused my Sunday observance uh, on Christmas, reading aloud 10 chapters from the Torah in the morning, 10 chapters from Revelation at midday, and the last two hours before midnight, the Koran. And my Christmas observance, reading four chapters from God, John's Gospel before each prayer time, and five before the last prayer time. And then three hours later, the entirety of John's Gospel, it being a Monday. Monday, Boxing Day, the furnace conked out, and the earliest I could get a repair person was Thursday. So no heat in the off-white house for four days. Which brings me to another aspect of Mungu Lakona. The Job rule is always in effect. With all of my strict religious observances, why was I being punished with no heat for four days? Never a valid question. If it's a punishment, you need to accept it and find redemption through the acceptance. If it's a test, you need to pass it. I hope I did. Quote, the fifth belongeth to God and the apostle, unquote, it says in the Quran. Likewise, quote, lend to God a goodly loan, and he will double it to you again and again, unquote. The origin of the zakah. Jacob vowed in the first book of Moshe 28-22 to give the tenth to God, the origin of tithing. I donate 20% of every dollar that comes into AB to the food bank of Waterloo Region. Accepting what I pay for groceries, I give as much money to panland panhandlers as I spend on myself. Monday and Wednesday, cookies and coffee and the Toronto Sun and Waterloo Region record. Uh, my subscription to the National Post and the Epoch Times. It's a win-win. It keeps me from spending excessive amounts of money on myself and ensures that some homeless person doesn't have to worry about food for a few hours. It's also, I infer, a good, quote, if everyone did this, the world would be a better place, unquote, theory. Just a theory, but it's my theory. Dialing your materialism down to five from 11 and dialing your charitableness up to five from zero. That's my perceived experience with the hand of God. Are these good choices? I'll find out on Judgment Day. What I did was to inject Cerebus into that Hemingway narrative. Cerebus is subject to the same hand of God construct. Bad choices lead to worse choices. He touches, touches religion obliquely in Rick's story and then makes the bad choice of Jaka over that religious sensibility. A bad choice option is always accompanied by a good choice option and a worse choice option. The dualistic on-ramps arrive simultaneously in our lives with just time enough to choose. Which is the snake and which is the ladder? Cerebus, choosing snakes over ladders repeatedly, sees Ham Ernestway as a reward instead of the warning that he is. As the two plane crashes are to Ham Ernestway, so Ham Ernestway's suicide is the Cerebus, a red flashing warning light. Ham Ernestway ignores his warnings, and Cerebus ignores his warnings, and they both end up 
the way they end up. The moral of the story is, quote, don't let this happen to you, unquote. Make better choices on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis, because everything matters, microcosm to macrocosm, and it's your soul that's at stake at every juncture. Mangu, Mangu Makono, God, in the hand of God. Good luck with your lyrics. You may not rock the house like the Pointer Sisters did with I'm So Excited, but any song grounded in Mangu Makono, I infer has to be a better choice and a better use for a musician's talent than the daughters of an Oakland, California minister singing about a one night stand. Right. So there you go. We're under two hours, Matt. High five. Well, that's part of it is because, as I said on the blog, I, I did the strip and I and I put it up a, a week ago going, I don't know if we're going to be doing Please Hold, but if we are, this is the strip. And if you want to send questions, then go ahead and like, Larry sent his in, and that was it. Everything else was stuff that I had found until Michael and Steve, and I'm like, oh, okay, you know, somebody remembered, oh, hey, it's the first of the month. <laughs> well, we're, we, we keep going as long as, as long as we can keep going, and uh, the, time, the time definitely always flies by. I mean... So you, you have a good night. You too. And uh, say... Say hi to Paula and the girls for me. Yeah, I actually have to rearrange their bedroom because they they sleep sleep on a bunk bed, but the big one wants her own room, so she's kicking her sister out. And now I have to build the loft bed we bought to put over the guest bed that the big one wants. And it's it's shuffling deck chairs in the Titanic of eventually these kids are leaving my house. I know that. I don't want them to leave today, but if they're going to continue to whine about who sleeps where, they can go. Right. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, girls especially get to the age where, uh, no, my sister can't be here anymore. I, I love having daughters. The, the old adage that girls mature faster than boys is I don't want to say mature, but the girls advance faster than boys, I fully believe. Both my kids, top of their class for reading and writing and arithmetic. I mean, you know, you know I went to Natasha's parent-teacher conference, and what the teacher said, and I told her this, is word for word what they said five years ago about her older sister. You know, these kids are just smart as whips. Meanwhile, I know little boys that are about the same age, and the parents are worried about how developmentally, you know, they're they're lacking, and I'm thinking maybe it's just that girls, you know, get there faster, maybe it's that part of one of the big feathers in my cap is both my kids are excellent readers, they're, you know, they, the school now, they're, the reading levels instead of being like 1 through 5 or something like that, it's letters, so A is the basic, and it progresses from there, <laughs> Both kids 
are supposed to be, in, in first grade, you're supposed to be at like a, what was it, like a F or a G, and both my kids were like K's, L's, you know, what the, the problem they're running into is not that they can't read, it's that they can't read things at their reading level that are appropriate with the content. And, right. And as the teachers say, it's a good problem to have. It's just really annoying because they only have two or three books that advanced in the classroom because kids aren't supposed to read that well. And what I think it is is when Natasha or when Janice was born, we were living in their, our apartment and getting the kid to go to sleep. Yo, know, all parents know newborns when they sleep, it is the best thing in the universe. You know, if you can make them fall asleep without any problems and they stay asleep, anything you do to maintain that state is the best thing ever. So, like, we're watching TV, but we have to turn the volume way down because we don't want to wake the baby. <clears throat> so we put the subtitles on. So we're watching TV with subtitles, we're watching movies, we watch it with subtitles. Well, we just got in the habit of leaving the subtitles on. So as the kid's growing up and we're watching like Sesame Street and child-appropriate shows, you know, they're hearing what Elmo's saying, but they're also seeing that there's words in the screen. And I think that... Right, I right, think, right. I think it was... in You know, it's... Because I was freaking out. How am I going to teach my kid to read? Like, like I've been reading for... I taught myself to read because I wanted to read Spider-Man comics. Like, what am I going to find that they want to read? And it turned out all I had to do was turn the subtitles on and walk away, and they'll figure it out. That's... That's good. That's uh, more people should be doing that. That's I I advocated every with both my kids' teachers. It's uh you should tell everybody put the subtitles on, because now my biggest problem is like we go to the in laws' house and they turn the TV on and it's crap. They're watching crap. It's reality TV show crap. <laughs> like the last time we were there, my mother in law, my mother in law is watching a show about customs in Australia. It's a TV show about customs officers dealing with foreigners coming into Australia, and, you know, they're kind of sketchy, and sometimes, you know, and, and the part I, I, I'm, watch, I'm, I'm not watching it, but it's there type thing. You know, it's kind of like when you have a TV, and, you know, if the TV's there, it's distracting you. And, yeah. And so, like, I'm not trying to watch this, but I'm watching it, and, like, the customer officer's going, well, I don't want to be accused of profiling but you fit our profile. I'm thinking, how is this a TV show? Like, like this is a series. It's not just a, a one-hour special. It's 20 hours of television, like 20 hours of your life, watching somebody do their job and, you know, finding drugs, not finding drugs. And I'm, uh, and, but when we're there, they don't have the subtitles on. So, like, I can't hear the TV if someone's being loud. I'm like, wait, I'm not interested, but what did they say? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. if they hand me the remote, go, oh, you can put on whatever you want. I'm like, oh, the first thing I put on is the subtitles. Let's read a movie. Right. But yeah, it's uh, it's, it's funny. Uh, uh, Nick and Kristen down uh, down the street, and their daughter Nola, and uh, I saw saw them saw them just before Christmas, and uh, uh, no. Uh, Nola, how, how old are you now? She goes, uh, I'm five. And she says, uh, my mom says I'm five going on 18. 
<laughs> I said, uh, no, a mom doesn't mean that in, right, in, in a good way. <laughs> Kristen says, we haven't had that conversation yet. <laughs> I'm going, okay, time for me to get away from here. Don't, don't say things like that, because as soon as I said, mom doesn't mean that in a good way, her face went like, huh, what? I missed something here. And that's definitely what you're talking about, the, the five going on 18, and mm, you probably know more stuff than you should actually know, and you don't know a lot of stuff that, uh, that you're going to, you, you should, you should know, so uh, well, you're good, 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 good luck to all old, uh, parents of overachieving daughters. Well, this is really quick, and you'll love this one. So yesterday, we were watching one of the Star Wars movies, and Natasha s says to me, where'd they film this? And I jokingly said, on location, in space. <laughs> because that's that's the tag at the end of Hardware Wars was filmed on location in space. And I'm like, I just, you know, spit it out. It was a fun joke. She didn't think I was joking. She's like, wait, they filmed this in space? And I'm like, well, remember when we were at Disney, we went on that ride, they got us on the spaceship, and then we went up into the other spaceship, and then we came back down to the planet, and she's going, wait, that was real? And I'm like, of course it was, why wouldn't it have been? And, and then, bad daddy, bad daddy. And then, and, and Paula was there too, and she's looking at her like, what do you mean, where did they film this? They filmed it, and I'm like, they filmed it in England, not a studio, you know, it's make-believe. Because whenever she asks me, is this a fiction? I'm like, well, usually when an, it's an animated talking dog, yeah, it's make-believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in the meantime, they've got, they're, they're absorbing like a sponge all of this stuff that they probably shouldn't be reading on the internet and talking to each other. Like, you're talking to their girlfriends where, you know, everything is allowed in some households. So they get to tell everybody stuff that, uh, no, it's, that's where the five going on, on 18 thing comes in. Well, we, we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. Have, have a good night. We'll, we'll, we'll revisit this, I'm sure, multiple times. In the next 20 years of my life until these girls stop talking to me. <laughs> that's right. Have a good night, Daddy. <laughs> you do, Dave. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.